This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Naturalist Journeys, carefully crafting birding and wildlife tours since 1998. For more information, go to www.naturalistjourneys.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and I don't know about you, but I am getting really anxious for spring, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not alone. Um, we're here in the last half of February, and there are little tidbits of spring showing. I live in the southeast, so I'm probably seeing it more than more than many. Trees are starting to bud, cardinals and chickadees are in full song these days, and, and my local red-shouldered hawks are loud and shameless in their courting and mating. So this is an exciting time, but it's also a dangerous time for birders, and I'll explain why I think that. I have a theory about this time of year, and it's informed by my experiences on listservs. And I've been I've been on bird listservs since I was a young birder. I realize that dates me a little bit. And and this theory has only seemed more accurate as social media becomes an increasingly important part of the way that birders communicate with each other. I call it the delayed spring theory. So for much of the continent, late February is a little bit of a birding doldrum. It generally lasts into March when the first migrants begin to kind of slowly make their way up into the southern states. Real migration, and by that I mean the big rush of Central and South American migrants, is still about six to eight weeks off, but it always feels like you're ready for it now once those first signs start showing. So so I think birders get a little anxious, they get a little tense, and then on social media and the listservs, they get a little short with each other. seems to happen every single year about this time of year at the turning point of winter and spring. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've said, man, I hope migration starts soon in the face of bickering on listservs and elsewhere. So nowhere has this been more apparent recently than in southern Ontario, where the old fissure between birders and photographers broke wide open in a storm surrounding a big movement of owls southward, because it's always owls, isn't it? It even made it into the world of non-birders. The Ottawa Sun reports foul play, and yes, that's foul with a W, and reports the conflict between birders and photographers baiting owls with pet store mice. It's a story that we have heard Many, many times before, people put out food for the birds so that they can get those nice kind of swooping shots of the bird coming in after prey. The ethics of that are sort of, well, mixed, I think, to say the best. Project Snowstorm Scott Widensaw came down pretty unequivocally against it in a recent essay published on Audubon's website. I'll have the link in the show notes here. The concern being that proximity to roads can lead to the birds coming into conflict with cars, and it's, it's worth noting that a number of publications will not publish photos of baited owls, though in the world of social media, that's not always the top priority, where likes are the big commodity. Uh, Ontario birder Liv Freed noted on Facebook, a friend of mine's Facebook post recently, that most of the antics seem to involve a few habituated celebrity owls uh, that seem to attract that sort of volatile combination of birders and photographers, and that most owls involved in these movements are, are more or less left alone. So there's something to be said about the knowledge that the incidences that get written about in the newspaper are, are relatively few in number, which is, which is good. The ABA's code of birding ethics comes down on the side of the bird here, and there's no doubt that their welfare should be paramount. It's a tough topic, and one made more difficult, I think, by our seasonal anxiety. Spring, it seems, cannot get here soon enough. In this episode, ABA President Jeff Gordon reports back from Black-backed Orioles Central in eastern Pennsylvania, sharing a bit of that exciting atmosphere of a rare bird coming to food so people can see it no less, so don't think that irony has not escaped me. 
Uh, but first, bird recordist Lang Elliott joins me to talk about his spring plans, a sound recording tour around the western United States, and his thoughts on bird sounds and what they mean to people. But first, here are your records. This is your rare bird focus for the middle of February 2017. February is typically a little slow in the ABA area, but a red wing, a Eurasian thrush not unlike an American robin, and a Code 4 species on the ABA checklist returned to a neighborhood in Victoria, British Columbia earlier this month. This would represent a third record of this species in the province. Many suspect that this is likely to be the same individual that spent much of the winter in this very same location from December 2015 to April of 2016, and it even could potentially be the same bird that represented BC's first record, yeah, in this same neighborhood in 2013. Though the further back you go in time, the less likely a coincidence like that would be. Uh, it is notable that all of BC's Red Wing records come from this spot, more or less. Most Red Wing records in the ABA area come from the eastern part of the continent. It is one of the few Eurasian vagrants that is not yet recorded in western Alaska. We'd like to mention first records in this space as well, and a couple good ones came in from the southeast in this period. A great Kiskadi was discovered in Colleton County, South Carolina last week. This would represent the farthest east record of this common middle American species. This was an undoubtedly an unexpected find, but Kiskadis can get around. There are a handful of records from Louisiana and some from South Dakota and Kansas in recent years. And in Virginia, an ancient merlet was seen among a massive movement of razorbill and dovekey at Back Bay National Wildlife Refuge in Virginia Beach, Virginia. The only other previous record of this species in the Atlantic was an individual that hung out around Seal Island this past summer, furnishing first records for both Maine and New Brunswick. It seems plausible that this individual might be that bird moving south with the closest thing it could find to other ancient merlets. This is only a small part of the rarity landscape in the ABA area during this period. To see all of the notable reports, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. And for up-to-the-minute updates on many of these birds, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. Lang Elliott is one of the world's premier bird sound recordists, and even if you don't know his name, you probably know his work. His recordings have appeared on nearly every available birdsong collection from the Stokes Field Guide to Birdsongs to the Sibley and iBird apps. In 2017, he will be undertaking a sound expedition through the western United States, and he'll be recounting that journey as he travels on his blog and in a podcast series. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Lang. Hey there, Nate. So we'll start by talking about your, your sound expedition. Um, what do you hope to accomplish on this trip, and what was sort of the genesis of this idea? Well, what I hope to accomplish is to gather soundscape recordings uh, throughout the American West, uh, because I haven't done a lot of recording out there. The focus is not so much on this species and that species, but rather uh, what I call the soundscape, which is the a recordings of the spatial, immersive spatial quality of being in various places and the mixtures of sounds. That's not to say I can't focus on, you know, a particular bird or a particular frog, but in general, I'm not after close and clean and rather sterile recordings of specific things as I much as much as I am the mix and the and the aesthetics of the soundscape and its effect on on the human psyche. On, on listening as a human being. 
That's neat. You know, the West has obviously a lot of really dramatic uh, visual landscapes. That's a lot of what we think of uh, when we when we think about the American West. Uh, what is it about the the soundscapes there that you find so fascinating? Well, seeing as I haven't done that much recording out there, I'm I would be talking before the fact of <laughs> the experience. But there's some wonderful sounds. I mean, like the Western whippoorwills or canyon winds in a canyon mm-hmm. setting. Uh, even cactus wren in the Sonoran Desert. Uh, you know, it's not a particularly beautiful song, but it's so emblematic of that habitat. Uh, in general, from the recording I have done out west, like I, I did some years ago, maybe six years ago, I did a Rocky Mountain trip. Uh, there was a soundscape orientation. And one thing I noticed is that in most places, you don't have the number of birds singing that you do, like in an eastern forest. Uh, you have fewer, uh, what I would call, sound objects contributing to a soundscape. But some of the sounds are just really wonderful. Like I remember uh, coming across a valley near Salt Lake City, Utah, out to the west in the, in the hills, uh, with curlews. Mm. And what a wonderful and special soundscape that was. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or even being out in the sagebrush and having gruis sparrows and, and the sage thrasher singing. And there may be only like a couple of species involved or a few species, but they're, you know, they're quite wonderful mixtures of sounds. And uh, so I will accept whatever is happening in in each place and attempt to gather aesthetically pleasing, uh, moving, immersive impressions Mm -hmm. of, of place. So what is it about the, the sounds of this nature, this sort of immersive sound that you, that it, and in particular, the, the need to record these sounds and share them that you think is so important for people to know? Well, when we get into my motivation, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm entirely honest, I'm doing this work because I love the work. You know, I love being in nature and for whatever reasons I've gotten involved with recording sound, even though I'm, I'm actually handicapped, I'm severely high frequency deaf to a accident with firecrackers when I was a kid. And as I got interested in, in sounds, I mainly focused, this was early on, uh, on frogs because I could hear most of them. There were all these birds, warblers and sparrows that were above my range of hearing. So I just, I shied away from that, but, I was like, I want to hear those sounds. So we're going back into the late 1990s. I decided there must be a way I could hear them. And I had a viewer tape recorder at the time. And I could, when I really, okay, back up. (laughs) Interesting story. When I first became really aware of what I was missing, is I was in graduate school at University of Maryland studying animal behavior and ecology. And one of the professors was a, uh, bird song expert. Gene Morton is his name. And he worked uh, through Smithsonian. He had great ears. And I remember that he was on my graduate committee. And I went out to his house one day uh, on the Severn River outside of Baltimore, you know, over by Annapolis, actually. And um, we went for a walk. And at one point, he got very excited because off in the distance, he was hearing a worm-eating warbler <laughs> one of the first for his property. And he said, do you hear that buzzing, you know, up in the the tree on that hillside? And I would shake my head. No, I don't. I don't hear. So, well, let's just get closer. 
So we got closer and closer, and I never was hearing it. Finally, we're standing under the tree, <laughs> watching it sing. Yeah. It open its mouth and sing, and I would hear a thing, you know, nothing. And he said, oh, well, you really need to get your hearing tested. So I had it tested, and I knew I'd had this accident with firecrackers when I was a kid. And they tested my hearing after that because my hearing disappeared for a few days and started coming back. All the doctor uh, said was, well, you shouldn't play in a rock band. <laughs> they didn't really tell me that it matched my high frequency. So here was a case where there's a bird singing, and it, it was really traumatic for me because mm -hmm. I had envisioned myself becoming sort of a see-all, hear-all naturalist type, mm -hmm. wandering the forest and the fields and being aware of so much of what was going on. And, and suddenly I realized I was missing this giant piece. Yeah. And it was depressing, but it stimulated me to hook up with the guy. His name was Harold Bode. He was in the uh, music uh, industry, along with, uh, if, you, if you know Moog, the Moog synthesizer. Oh, he yeah, right. A contemporary of Moog. But Bode was known for this frequency shifting device mm -hmm. that you could you know, play your music into and shift the frequencies around. So I thought, hey, there must be a way for me to hear these sounds. Uh, well, first, I, I would go out with this, once I realized I was missing something, I would go out with this Ewer tape recorder and record it, seven and a half inches per second, and then play it back to me, myself, at half that speed. And suddenly there were all those bird sounds. Yeah. So I thought, well, there must be a way to do this in real time. Hmm. And uh, that's how I came up with Harold Bode. And he built me this special shifting device for bird songs. And uh, it was it was this big thing. It was a rack mount device with batteries, <laughs> and a rack mount is means that in a studio setting you can mount it in these things they called racks. Mm -hmm. And I lugged that around for several years, and then finally, sort of, you know, it worked. It worked really splendidly. But I gave up on hauling this big device around. <laughs> but I could uh, tune in birds and things. So later, when I got interested in in recording birds, um, you know, I had that device. I was working at the Lab of Ornithology, actually. And um, I went on a big trip. With that device, I was able to tune in all these birds that I otherwise couldn't hear and make recordings. Uh, in spite of this problem, I was good at getting the recordings. And um, my friend Ted, who has excellent hearing, he was less good at getting it, actually, at that point in time because he wasn't as good with the equipment. But he could get out of the car and hear all these things that I wouldn't hear. And then I would wander around and with the help of my device, stumble upon things. So it's sort of an amazing story. You know, I'm a half-deaf bird. <laughs> this is a question that may have too many answers <laughs> to it. But uh, what are some of the, your favorite natural sounds, things that really give you joy? Oh, there are so many. I'm quite attracted to things that sound off in the night. Mm -hmm. and, you know, both the frogs and toads, I love all the frogs and toads, but owls and night jars and rails in marshes and, you know, the, the, the wonderful, I just think it's wonderful, the sounds that happen in, during the dark of the night. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I have a, a tremendous attraction to wetlands, being around wetlands, because the soundscapes are so rich with variety. Yeah. Uh, but when I come out in, into the daylight, so to speak, you know, there are a lot of things I really enjoy. Like I love the thrushes, of mm -hmm. course, yeah. and 
like the winter wren and and some of the other wrens canyon wren is just amazing i love the the doves uh and all the sounds they make the lower pitch kind of stuff mm-hmm. it's really nice uh you know those are my favorite in north america a lot of them are a bit you know they're on the high end there's a lot of the twittering of the birds if you look on sonograms is mostly above three kilohertz three thousand hertz you know so that my favorite sounds are generally lower in pitch uh partly because i mean i hear those uh without the help of a device but higher pitch sounds typically aren't you know as experienced as musical or quite as they're not quite as moving yeah unless something exquisitely beautiful like a buried thrush or you know, some of the, the thrush songs, you can be quite moved by those. Yeah. Uh, but the vast majority are, you know, there's a lot of little birds doing thin little songs or yeah. songs where you, you need some refinement. Like you may, you, you may enjoy bird, let's say the high picture things. You can enjoy them. I wouldn't call it different levels. I'd call it different ways. Uh-huh. One is tuning in to like the twittering of the birds at dawn that Thoreau writes about a lot. Uh-huh. Now, he knew a lot of the bird songs, but when he when he writes about the twittering of dawn, he's getting across another concept, and that's the psychological effect of all the birds in the dawn chorus, the simmering of those sounds, like a, you know, it's a frying pan of sound. Yeah, yeah, that's, or coffee maker, I was thinking almost. Yeah, they're all coming out almost like little sparklers. Or yeah. it's, it's really the aesthetic experience of that uh, with my soundscape work, I may go out and focus on a particular bird. Like this last summer, I recorded a lot uh, down in a nearby natural area here in upstate New York called Shindagan Hollow. I did numerous trips down there and numerous tries at hermit thrushes. Hmm. Now, every time I tried, I got recordings and and it, these weren't work. It wasn't working with the parabola. That was pretty. That would be pretty easy to go up. One singing up overhead, you just get under it, and aim the parabola, and it sort of isolates it. Mm-hmm. But what I was wanting was the the hermit thrush in context, things that were beautiful to behold, because it's a beautiful song, mm-hmm. but it's always heard in context. Yeah. You don't hear them as a loud thing that's devoid of everything else. It's uh it's the experience is partly an experience of place being in the environment like yeah. for shenanigan hollow it's among the hemlock trees mm-hmm. uh, that's top sort of a ridge along the top of the hollow but then there's also the other sounds like you might have a veery off to the side or magnolia warbler other things singing uh there were black-throated green in in that particular spot and blackburnian warblers were there but then there might be drip from the trees. Uh, one of my favorite recordings of the hermit thrush from last summer was after it rained the night before, and I got in among the hemlocks. It was actually mixed woods, and there was all this drip, and it's the hermit thrush singing from a particular spot, and then drip happening all around, mm-hmm. three-dimensional experience of, of countless little drips hitting not only the forest floor and leaves and the the needles from mm-hmm. the hemlock, but also limbs and you know things on the way down, and it's just this rich, wonderful, spacious soundscape, and then subtle bird songs off mm-hmm. to the side of other species. Yeah, your your description of it really immediately puts me in a place too where I hear hermit thrushes, which is usually the you know the high ridges of the southern Appalachians and western North Carolina. Yeah. 
it's the same sort of thing. You know, you're in this, you're in the hemlocks, uh, uh-huh. those hermit thrushes, and, and magnolia warbler and black burning warbler singing around. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it, it is. It's a sense of a sense of place that these bird songs put us in. That's so that's so important beyond you know the birds singing there. Yeah. So that's my focus, like on this upcoming trip. It is gathering those the experience. It's mm-hmm. really it really has to do with experience. It's it's not so much a lot of intellectual information. Yeah, I'll have some of that, but that isn't the focus. It isn't really even the stories about all the different birds or frogs, mm-hmm. but it's the sound and the way it mixes and fits yeah. within the environment. And maybe, uh, you know, the sounds of multiple species or one thing, but rendered in context. Right. And, and as an artist, like I, it's like I'm a landscape like a landscape photographer who goes out and looks for those combinations that are pleasing to the eye. I'm primarily focused on what is pleasing to the ear. Mm-hmm. Mine is not a scientific, like from a scientific standpoint, every soundscape is equivalent. It's a documentation of what happens in any particular place. Mm-hmm. But I'm not really, you know, I'm, I'm documenting place in a way that I'm making all these decisions about what I want to focus on. And I'm looking for material that is nice to listen to, that's healing on some level. Mm-hmm. And it's just my particular focus. It reflects what I'm interested in and my own sensibilities uh, in terms of the aesthetics of natural sounds as to what I want to gather and what I want to reflect back into the world. Uh, beginning at the end of February, I will embark upon a six-month nature recording actually soundscape recording expedition Mm -hmm. primarily to the western states i will start in the uh, marshes along the louisiana coast head over into several uh, regions in texas the hill country lower rio grande valley and then sort of zip over to arizona and i'll work arizona the sonoran desert and the canyons and then as the months roll on head up into the great basin and also record in all the the western mountain ranges and maybe uh circle over to the prairie states for a short little visit before finishing my journey during the monsoon season back in arizona when a lot of frogs and and certain birds happen along the way i'll be posting recordings in various ways i'll have my own podcast series Mm -hmm. uh, called the music of nature podcast series and i will be uh, posting on my blog on my website and what I'm really excited about is my nature sound map. I'll have a map of my journey. When I get a recording I want to share, I'll post a marker on the map. It's a Google map. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you click on the marker, a uh, window will open and you can play the recording. That's great. That's uh, great. See a picture of the habitat and read a little bit, bit about it. So as the months roll on, you'll be able to track my journey and sort of experience it vicariously through these markers and the recordings that go along with it. So I'm quite excited about that. Yeah, and that will all be at musicofnature.com, your website there. Yeah, go there. And I'm also trying to get financial support for this trip. Mm -hmm. And uh, I make it easy to donate. I'm financing this completely out of my own pockets. And the, the idea is to share freely, giving it this back. So if people think it's worth worth something if, if think that I'm actually performing a service I would really appreciate some support to help me pay for this journey and ones that will come after it sure and we will put all that information in the show notes for this 
episodes. So we'll make sure they get in there. Well, um, thanks, Lang, for, for joining me. Um, make sure to check out his website, musicofnature.com, for all his travels, all the recordings, and to help him out along the way. Uh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you, Nate. It's been really enjoyable to do this interview. The black-backed Oriole in eastern Pennsylvania was not that far away from the ABA's headquarters in Delaware City, Delaware. ABA President Jeff Gordon headed up there to take in the atmosphere. For the last three weeks, birders have been enjoying and discussing the male black-backed Oriole, which has been frequenting suburban Sinking Spring, Pennsylvania, in Berks County, just west of Reading. Since that's less than a two-hour drive from ABA headquarters, Liz and I have made the trip up twice on February 6th and 18th, and enjoyed multiple views of BB, as the bird is affectionately known. Of course, a lot of the discussions about this bird, online and off, have revolved around how on earth he might have arrived here, and to what degree humans may have wittingly or unwittingly facilitated that process. But that's not the story I want to share with you today, because whatever the Pennsylvania and ABA Records and Checklist Committees eventually decide about this bird's likely, make that unlikely, wild or captive, origins, so much of what is special about this bird's occurrence is the people who have been brought together by it. The first thing to understand about the scene with this Oriole is that there are at least three human couples who are playing pivotal roles in people seeing and enjoying it. Sue and Richard Hipke, at whose feeders BB most frequently appears, Tom and Linda Binder, the -the across-the-street neighbors who have opened their driveway, yard, and hearts to over a thousand visiting birders, and Mike and Jan Slater, local birders who have served as caretakers, facilitators, and stewards par excellence. We're going to hear from the Hipkeys and Mike Slater, but I'll let Tom and Linda Binder, who had never really been birding before this year, start the story. Friday morning, February 3rd. Linda gets up Friday morning like clockwork and leaves for work at quarter of eight. She pulled out of the driveway. I said goodbye to her, and I saw it turned out to be Frank and Barbara Haas with a telephoto lens camera and binoculars and a couple of other people across the street looking around. And by the time I had a chance to think twice, they were across the street on our sidewalk, and I said, are you birders? And I'm not quite sure what caused me to think that. But at that instant, Frank said, there it goes, and it flew into our backyard. So I said to them, come into the garage. We have a back door out of the garage that has glass in it, and that's where Frank Haas took that little picture of the bird on the bird bath that we've been giving out by the hundreds, with Frank's permission. So that's what happened. And, and the next thing that happened is Barbara Haas pulled me aside and said, this is what's going to happen to you. You know, this is a black-backed Oriole, never been seen, told me the whole story. People are going to be coming here from all over the place. People are going to f- fly here to see this bird. We have to make a, visit, you know, a, a visitor's log. I'm thinking, Really? But at that moment, I guess her enthusiasm was infectious. I said, okay, let's, we we cobbled together the visitor's log table for some yard sale items in the basement. (laughs) 
set up an old coffee can to receive donations for the Nature Conservancy because she says, you know, this is an opportunity for you to do some good. And people started coming. That was the day that 60 people came. And the following day, we woke up <sighs> upstairs, looked out the window, and there they were already. Yeah, about 40 people in out the driveway. <laughs> driveway. <laughs> and so we just, we just went with it. 266 people signed the visitor's log that Saturday, the 4th of February. I am Mike Slater. live here near Reading, Pennsylvania. I'm the president of the Baird Ornithological Club, the local bird club. Hi, I'm Sue Hipke, and uh, we are the keeper of the bird, my husband and I. <laughs> Richard Hipke. Right, and you guys are the homeowners where the black-backed Oriole is showing up, and, and I and a whole crowd of people just enjoyed seeing it just a, a short time ago. But I just, I just wanted to ask you, because I know, you know our audience is curious. You guys obviously like birds, because you have a, a pretty nice little feeder set up here. But mm-hmm. what did you think when you saw this bird? Like, what... <laughs> What, what was well, your reaction? I mean, you know, we, you know, we we feed the birds because we like seeing different birds. And of course, uh-huh. that, I saw that bird. That bird came. Uh-huh. We couldn't find it in any of our books. Uh-huh. So my wife sent it to one of her friends who belongs to the club. Yeah. I mean, Liz, Liz Case, yeah. Liz Case, who's the program chairman of our bird club or chairperson. Mm-hmm. This time of the year, the big thrill is the cardinals that come. Mm-hmm. You know. So and and I guess people initially thought maybe it was a bullock's oriole when they when we heard it was an oriole with uh-huh. white in the wings. Right. And, but then it was like you know I guess it's kind of like you know hooking what you think is a, a nice tuna and then it turns out to be a marlin you know or, <laughs> yeah or, or exactly maybe even something more than that. But, we just knew it was a different uh-huh. yeah. and and beautiful mm-hmm. no matter what it, it is. is yeah right but so. How I got to ask you, you guys have been so generous and your neighbors in, in welcoming people in. I hope people have been behaving well and you Very haven't well. had any problems. They've nope. been wonderful. Everybody's yeah. been so nice and they've uh, haven't blocked anything. They've been fantastic. They've been really good. That's good. Yeah. That's good. So, so do you have a guesstimate of how many people have come to see it? You might know that. I don't. It's over 600. I haven't. And that's the basically in. Five days? Since Friday at 10 a.m. Wow. That's terrific. Well, listen, congratulations and thank you so much. This is just okay. such a cool thing. And and thank you for, for welcoming birders in. No problem. We like it. We're enjoying it. That's great. It's a bright spot in the winter. <laughs> what I've seen in the driveway is the sort of close-knit camaraderie that exists between birders some of whom have seen each other on birding experiences before, some of whom have never met before. But they have something in common that for them is very meaningful, I mean, and deeply emotionally meaningful in a way. They connect with this bird, and through this bird they connect with something larger, nature, spirituality, whatever it is. And... You know, it's just, it's been feeding us. Mm-hmm. It really has. People say mm-hmm. thank you. You know, I'm, I'm the one <laughs> who should be thankful because, you know, how often, how often do you have an experience where people just show up in your life for no apparent reason and, you know, pour their hearts out? I, I keep saying this to all of my clients at the salon, too. It's amazing how this little, what, four-ounce bird has changed our lives mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks. It yeah. is amazing. 
You know, is it a sign? I don't know. I don't know. And you yeah. learn something about your loved one, you know, your wife. <laughs> I mean, she didn't say, honey, you really should be doing what you're supposed no. to be doing. She just kind of let me run with this, and she's well, joined sure. right in when she's available to do that. Uh, we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. This is what we're supposed okay, to be doing, without you. a doubt. So I'm here with Mike Slater again, and um, it's, what, uh, 10 days since the last time we were up here? And uh, it's a, a warm, sunny afternoon. <laughs> and uh, we had sort of a, a tough day with the Oriole today for a while there. It showed up uh, kind of as per usual first thing in the morning, and then it was absent for a long time. Yeah, there were people getting quite antsy. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Tom was just like, I mean, he was really getting uh, frustrated, I think. You know, he's like... Oh, I, I know. It's people... like, I want these people to see it. I don't want them to go home disappointed. Or... Right, right. But I think, all in all, with over 1,400 people that have been here, I think its batting average is close to 1,000. Yeah. You feel possessive. You want now people like Tom does to to see the bird, have a good time, and that's been our goal, and I think we succeeded. Not Very few people got the photographs they wanted of him because of the distance, but our goal was to get as many people as possible to see this bird, and we've succeeded in that. Oh, very, very well. So what, uh, what spectacular Central American vagrant are you planning to host next? I had some people trying to convince me a leucistic white-throated sparrow with a white head was something interesting from Central America this week. Okay, we'll work on that <laughs> and, and get back to us. But uh, anyway, thanks for all your work that you've done uh, making this happen. It's really been a great experience for a lot of people. Yeah, it's been interesting. Now we know how many people will show up for a Code 5 like this in suburban eastern Pennsylvania. All right, again, Mike, thanks so much. Had that encounter out on the sidewalk there with uh, Frank and Barbara, and and you, uh, on some level, were like, you know, being told all these people are going to show up and everything, and you guys were kind of up for it. Um, that that's obviously not a response that everybody has. Has the reality of it? How is it matched up with or differed from what you imagine might happen? Mm, totally have exceeded my expectations. I How guess. So? The amount of people and the distance they will travel to maybe get a chance to look at this bird. I mean, you don't know if it would fly away and you've traveled, you know, 800 miles and it's not there. So you turn around and go back. And the patience that these people have had to stand a couple of hours just to see this little guy. Um, that is amazing to me. That's true dedica dedication. Well, there's so many aspects of this. I mean... For, for me, I, you know, I'm semi-retired. I work at home. It's the dead of winter. We don't like winter very much. <laughs> so this was a perfect distraction. Mm -hmm. And to immerse oneself into a culture that you're unfamiliar with, it's almost like going on a vacation, but I, all I had to do was step outside my door. Mm -hmm. So people have brought gorgeous cameras, mm. beautiful spotting scopes, Swarovski and lights and all these you know, probably I've seen some pretty high-tech birding clothing, but I didn't know it. <laughs> and, and people, one morning in particular, I remember, some guy rolled in from Amarillo, Texas. He would, you would have guessed he was a Texan if you'd seen him. At the same moment, he started talking with a guy who was here from Toronto, and there was another person there from, from Arizona, and they all just started chatting like they 
just were good old buddies who hadn't seen each other for a month or two, and here we are again. It just it made no sense to me on one level. But, of course, we've been passionate about this and that. We love mm-hmm. to ride our motorcycle. Sure. You know, you get a group of people who love doing something together, and the, the passion is kind of infectious. It's, it's been great fun. I mean, <laughs> it's one of those experiences where, you know, if somebody said, this is what's going to happen to you, do you want to do this? You might say, no, I'm fine. Thanks very much. But once you throw yourself into it, it gets to be, mm-hmm. you know, you just keep going with it and going with it. And it turns out to be terrific and you get more back than you ever gave. Yeah, That's and, totally clear. And there's more to come, I'm sure. Oh. I'm sure there is. Thank you very much, and it's been great talking to you and great getting to know you, and uh, welcome to birding. Thank you. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. And as of today, BB is still making regular visits to the feeders and the people in Sinking Springs. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the other great free resources the ABA produces, please join us. We're running a membership special. If you join or renew by the end of February 2017, you'll be entered in a drawing for a pair of Leica Trinovid binoculars. Get more information at aba.org join. Executive producer of this podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. John's band, The Hangabouts, does the music. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. On the latter, we are at ABA, not to be confused with the American Bus Association, though we are big fans of public transportation. Birders, after all, were ride-sharing before Uber was a thing. Questions or comments can be directed to me at podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.